we began a series a couple of weeks ago called Oasis that deals with the whole thing of, of emotional health and how it ties in so much with our spiritual, uh, spiritual health as well, uh, that if we don't have real good emotional health and we don't just spend some time reflecting upon the things of life, that we'll tend to repeat the mistakes of the past. And also that, that our relationship with God, if we really don't see it, if we see it as an appendage to what we do, it's just simply something we add on, that it becomes really something that really doesn't, uh, it's not what God wants us to do and what God wants us to be. And so we began this process a couple of weeks ago talking about emotional health and how important it is. And then last week we talked about this whole thing of, how, of knowing ourselves, how important it is to know yourself. That so often in life we, we have a large part of who we are that's hidden from ourselves and we need to understand who we are so that we can love ourselves. And, and also love others and love God because the great commandment in Matthew 22 says we're to love God. The most important thing of all is to love God and to love our neighbor like what? As ourselves. And so there's three components to, to what we do in the Christian life. One is to love ourselves. One is to love our neighbor, but most importantly to love God. And we love God by loving ourselves and loving our neighbor. So if you're totally confused, we'll hopefully uh, kind of uh, get that clear as we go along this morning. Uh, we, you know, the, one of the things that we understand, I think, fairly clearly from Scripture is this, is that we're created in God's image to do what God does, and that is to uh, experience love and to uh, be loved. And we come into the world, um, Christian psychologists and others say that we come into the world with some basic needs, uh, some needs, uh, this intense hunger for stable, stable tender relationships. Uh, there's uh, uh, Basically, they'll say this, we have fi- five pre-wired uh, things that, that we need for healthy development in life. All of us have this desire. One is a, a need for a place, uh, a sense of belonging. All of us want to feel like we have a place to belong. We all have that pre-wired into us by God. Secondly, a need for nurturing. Uh, this whole thing of uh, words and gestures and of appreciation and affection, touch, being listened to, being held. Uh, it's what I, uh, what I need for emotional, physical being at each stage of development. Now, uh, women, it's not just you guys. It's, it's guys, too. We all have that. Uh, for some, some of you think, well, it's only women that have this emotional need like that. No, guys have that need too. We just don't express it as well as women do generally. And so we need to work on that more. Another need we have is need for support, a caring, loving environment, a place where we can just feel cared for. Another need is the need for protection from physical, emotional, or sexual harm. And finally, a need for limits, boundaries. Because without boundaries, there are all sorts of challenges that will happen in our life. Narcissism, promiscuous behavior, all kind of things in life, and we need those. It helps us to feel healthy to know we have boundaries uh, in our life and that we have to uh, live in those boundaries. Now, that was God's intents and purposes, that those place take place in, in something called a family. If you see those needs there, isn't that the best place for these needs to be met, is in a healthy family? Uh, that is what God designed it. If we look back in Genesis in the very beginning of Scripture. But the problem with that is that we see very early on in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, something happens in the world that changes the fact that these needs aren't met perfectly in families. And you know what that was in Genesis chapter 3? It's called sin. S-I-N. Sin. Sin happens to us. And it happens in the world. And we see immediately this perfect family that starts in the Garden of Eden. We see all uh, immediately as they begin to have kids, and we, we understand that in the very beginning family, this first family... Because of sin in their lives, these needs aren't being met. And, and, and a matter of fact, there's all kinds of problems that, that break out in this family. There's jealousy that breaks out. And the jealousy leads to murder. And we see this whole destructive behavior starting really early on in families that scars the relationships, this, this plan that God has for us uh, in Scripture to have the kind of uh, these needs met in a healthy way. 
in our families. And I have to say this, even in the best of families, and all of us grew up in the best of families, I'm sure, you know, perfect families, and we have the best one now, right? We're all perfect. The reality is we all have sin in our life. And because we have sin in our life, we have imperfect families. And because the families we grew up in uh, influence us in such a powerful way, so often we have certain things that happen in life that we have these generational patterns. We're going to look at that today in the life of one of the uh, persons in the Old Testament that tells, shows not only that there was a generational pattern of, of bad behavior in a family, but it can be broken. And you don't have to stay where you're not condemned to live the life the way your generation before lived. You don't have to be that way. God gives us a way to deal with that. But even in the best of families, there's sin and brokenness. And nobody emerges from their family situation uh, unscathed from, from uh, without wounds and scars. And who we really are, we talked about this last week, to really love yourself, you need to know who it is that God created you to be, not who everybody else wants you to be. And if you missed last week or the week before, you can go back and look at the podcast. If you want to go deeper as well into this, we have small groups that are actually meeting that are studying a book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that goes along with this series. And uh, I was talking to Dan, uh, Dan Haney earlier. Uh, they actually have, I think, a group on Wednesday night that meets here at church, and he's have like a huge group of people that showed up for that, and he was really excited about that as well. So you can go deeper in this if you'd like to, and I would encourage you as well. Don't just let Sunday morning, let Sunday morning be a launching point. For your study of God's word, not all you get during the whole week. Because I only give you so much uh, in the half an hour we're here together with the teaching. Um, the thing about this, though, even though all of us uh, have sin and brokenness in our families growing up, and it affects us in different ways, the reality is, is when you come to Jesus Christ and you know him as Lord and Savior, guess what the Bible says? We have a new family. Not a perfect family, because it's made up of what? Imperfect people, sinners. But it's a new family that, that comes along, and when we become, become a Christian, the Bible says we're born again, we're adopted into this new family, a new father, a new sister's brothers, new name, new inheritance. We have all those things. But the point of this today we're going to talk about is this, is that we have still in our lives, even though we have this new family, we still have this unprocessed, these unbiblical ways of being in the world that we learn from our family growing up in, this imperfect family. And the culture that that's that's around that surrounds that family, and we have these things that are lodged in our bodies and our brains, these thoughts, these 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 things. And we if we don't if we don't be careful, what happens is we have this magnetic pull back toward that def, I call it the default setting of our lives, the things we 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 kind of went through in our lives and our families, and they become our blueprint for being. And the cycle of growing in Christ, and we, we were talking, that's the reason we're talking about this, is really growing to where God wants us to be so we can love ourselves and love our neighbor as ourselves and then love God in a real way, the way he wants us to. The cycle is putting off the old sinful patterns of our biological family and our culture and being transformed so that we might be the authentic self in Christ that God wants us to be and be a blessing to the world. See, God put you here and me here for a reason. And that reason is not always obvious, but one of the keys to understanding what that reason is, is to go back in order to go forward. You have to go back in order to go forward. We're going to talk about today. That's why this, the sermon is called that. And there's three steps into that, and we're going to look at a biblical character, Joseph. If you have your Bibles this morning, take them and turn to Genesis chapter, chapter 50, the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, we're going to look at a few verses and just hold on to that for a few moments. And we'll look at those in just a few moments as we talk about Joseph. 
The first step, though, in beginning this process of, of going back in order to go forward so that we can learn from our past to go forward and be the best self that God wants us to be is we've got to recognize the baggage from our, from our past and our family. All of us have baggage. The older I get and the more I spend time reflecting, the more I realize that. Let me tell you, it's real easy to not understand that when you are surrounded in a culture for many years. It's not until we moved from the East Coast, from Virginia, here eight and a half years ago, that I was distanced from that culture that I grew up in. You're going like, this is still America, right? Yep. This is Midwestern America, though. And there's a different religious climate here than there is on the East Coast. There's a different, there's a different, um, there's some different um, things that, that, uh, that, that Midwesterners think about that I began to make me challenge me. And also, I was not in the culture, the religious culture that I grew up in that I was kind of encapsulated in all my life. I was in one denomination. I was a Southern Baptist for, uh, let's see, how many years of my life? 45, 46 years of my life, 47, 48 years of my life. I'll give away my age here soon. And uh, the thing is, is I was that all of my life, and I didn't realize how often I simply took for granted that certain things were biblical, but I'd never really thought about them. Not basic, not not essentials, but non-essential things, things that are gray in Scripture. I just took it for granted. We, that was the Southern Baptist way. And if you grew up as a Catholic, if you grew up as a Methodist, you grew up as an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or not whatever, you had no religious upbringing, you all have baggage. All of you do. I do. You do. And we have to get past that baggage to understand what it is that God says. And we all grew up in families, and those families affect us in huge ways, often more than we realize. None of you have ever said things like, I can't believe I said that. It sounds just like my father or my mother. I mean, you maybe thought that. You didn't say it out loud because you don't want anybody to think that. But the issue is, is that we start... Repatterning ourselves after the families we grew because we had such a, there was such a huge influence in the formative years of our lives. Now this morning I want to talk about this. How do we need to recognize the baggage from our family? And we're going to look at a, at a family. And I'm going to throw you up here something called a genogram. Go ahead and throw up the next slide. Genogram is kind of a, a flow chart of a family. Okay, um, you can all write if you wanted to do this for your own family. You can. It's kind of cool. I thought about doing it sometime to kind of explore my family further, but a genogram is simply a diagram. And this is a genogram for, for a guy in the Old Testament. His name was Joseph. Joseph is represented by the yellow block down here. Okay, you see way down here is Joseph. And you go way back. That's his, that's his immediate family, all of his brothers and, and, his, and his messed up family and his grandparents and his great-grandparents and, and all kind of stuff. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to leave that up there for a while so you'll understand that these connections. But if you go back a couple of generations, you go back all the way to the top of the page, you see a guy named Abraham and then on one side Hagar and on the other side Sarah. Well, Sarah was... And Abraham were, um, were Joseph's, let's see, grandparents, great-great-grandparents, okay, great-grandparents. And if you know anything, if you want to read about this family, turn to the book of Genesis. About a third of the book of Genesis talks about just this family. Maybe more than that, maybe half of the book of Genesis. So I'm going to tell you the half of the book of Genesis today in about 10 minutes, and then I'm going to talk about what it means, okay? So we look back. Now, if you look back and you know anything, you've read Scripture, Abraham and Sarah... Did they have any issues? Were they the perfect family? No way, Jose. No, they had. Uh, li- they lied. They lied a lot. 
They had some real issues. I mean, it's, it's in Scripture. I don't have to, I'm not making this up. You can read Scripture. Abraham lied about his relationship to Sarah to save his own, own hide one time. Uh, there's other lies that he told. They had this, this continual cycle of lies. And, and they had, they had sibling rivalry with, in, in their family with their kids. And they had, uh, favoritism. They showed favorites to kids. That's why we have the little line over there with Hagar and the little block is kind of like, eh, they don't work too well together. And then down here between brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, you have these, this, this problem going on. You have all this stuff going on. The family was kind of a dysfunctional family. Even though they did a lot of good things, they had a really dysfunctional family. And really they had an unhealthy marriage because it was all these dynamics going on in real way. So that was the great-grandparents' legacy. Next below that is, is the legacy of, of Isaac and Rebekah. That's the grandparents of Joseph. And Isaac and Rebekah, if you look at it, they have another little line. Esau and Jacob, you know, they got along great, right? No, they, they had sibling rivalry once again. And, 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 uh, and, and, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, uh, they, they told lies. They, uh, they had sibling rivalry. They had favorite. You see any patterns here emerging? Just go to scripture. I, I'm just showing you a real quick overview of the family history here in scripture. They had that same deal. And then you come down to Jacob. You see, go down from there to Jacob over there. And then you see this long line with all kind of stuff going on here. You see a long line. And over on the, the top of the line next to Jacob over there, you see Leah and Bilhah and Zilpha and Rachel. And you're going like, who are all those people? You talk about one messed up family. They had, he had two wives and two concubines, whatever that is. Okay, that's who those are. Okay, and so just think about how nice that family conversation was around the dinner table. Okay, here here's Jacob and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpha and Rachel all living in the same household. You know, and they had all this conflict going on. And then all these people here, all these people under the line here, you see this line here is a bunch of names. They were the first ten sons over to you see that and going down of of uh, of Jacob, ten sons. And then you get to the 11th son, it's Joseph. And then you have one of the son, Benjamin, there. And it's under, and Rachel was the mother. And you kind of get, you have all the stuff. You understand exactly, right? You understand there's a little bit of a problem here. There were some problems. You know what the name, it's interesting too, that what, uh, what Isaac and Rebecca, remember Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, they all had lies in their, in their family. Guess what uh, Isaac and Rebecca, when they named their son Jacob, you know what the word Jacob means in scripture? Deceiver. How would you like to have that name? It's your name. Hey, he's going to lie. I know he's going to because it's a family history. Let's just go ahead and call him that. And it's kind of like the deal. That's what happened. It was once again, lies, sibling rivalry, favoritism. And as we see this whole thing being lived out in Scripture here, it's it's amazing because I just want to show you that Joseph, Joseph's legacy, three generations past that we know of specifically in Scripture, was a, a legacy of family, families that were dysfunctional. Families that had lies and deception and sibling rivalry and favoritism, all the unhe- unhealthy marriages. That was his legacy. Now understand that as we talk about Joseph and where he ended up. And the Scripture we're going to look at today in, cha- in Genesis chapter 50 in just a few moments. And this lack, and, and one of the problems they had to this favoritism thing, and I gotta tell you about five chapters here real quick, uh, in scripture, with Joseph here, what happened was, is that all these, un, all these other brothers older than him didn't really like Joseph. Joseph, the first reason they didn't like Job was, Joseph, number one was, his dad played favorites. Now I know parenting's a tough, tough job. 
We all agree that parenting is a tough job. Anybody here that has kids, will you raise your hand and say parenting is a tough job, okay? If you think parenting is an easy job, let me talk to you. I want to find out what your secret is or what you're on, okay? Because parenting, I have a 22-year-old and I have a 28-year-old, okay? And I still parent. I thought it would be over with by now. But it's not. And, and so the issue is, is parenting is a tough job. And one of the tough jobs of parenting is this, is we have care, the kids that come into the world with different personalities, different temperaments. Some of them are easier to get along with than others, right? And, you know, it's really hard as a parent sometimes to not play favorites. But let me tell you, favoritism is the killer. And one of the worst things that, that Jacob did with his kids is he played favorites. He let, his, let the older ten sons know that Joseph, my, my, younger, my next to the youngest son, is my favorite. And he let it be known by doing a whole bunch of special things for him. One of the special things he did in that day was um, huge. He gave him this special coat that was like a, a special made, like a, like a coat that was of many colors. He, he gave him a special coat. And in doing so, it's like one of you guys, you know, like saying, like you're having two kids and, and when your kids, both your kids turn 16 and one of them says, or both of them say, we need a car, Dad. And you will look at one of them and say, well, you're going to have to work to get a car, son. And the other one, you look at them and say, okay, sure, I'll give you a BMW. I mean, it was that big of a deal, okay? That big of a difference in favoritism in this culture. You have to understand the bigness of this thing. And so that, is, that was the struggle they were having here. And do you think that that made him more enamored with uh, Joseph, his, his brothers really liking? No, it made him despising. And then for some reason, in, in his immaturity, one of the things that Joseph does, he has this dream. Joseph has a dream. And if I'd have had the dream and I had any kind of sense whatsoever, I understand he was 17 years old and he probably didn't have a lot of sense at this time. But the, the thing was, is he, don't, you know, not all seven, not all 17 year olds are created equal. But uh, guys are a little slower than girls, I know, at that age. Then we catch up and surpass. No. Um, I had to throw that in. Um, I'll get in trouble. All the women are going to beat me up later. Okay. Um, but the issue is, as I'll admit, guys are usually emotionally slower and, and, and they take a more, longer period. Usually girls about 17 are decently mature. Guys are they're clueless. And um, that's kind of the deal. Well, obviously, obviously, uh, Joseph was, was a normal 17-year-old. He had this dream. And in the dream, guess what a dream was? The dream was, if you know Scripture, was that the dream was basically that he was going to be the ruler and all his brothers would have bowed down to him. And he told his brothers. Now, how would you like that dream? Would that make you, your brothers like you even more? Now, I wasn't very smart. That was the kind of deal he was having here. And, and, and through this, this was the, the thing that broke everything loose and started the whole downslide for, for, uh, for, for Joseph and, his, and, and what was going on with him. And, began, and it began what I would call several traumas that happened in his life. You know what a trauma is? Now? I'm not talking about medical trauma. I'm talking about it's a trauma. It's a startling experience which has a lasting effect. It has a shock to your life. It, it shatters our sense of safety in the world. The first trauma was this. After his brothers, he told his brothers about this, this, um, this dream. And after his dad had given him this cool coat, nobody else had one. You know, um, what he did is his brothers said, I've had enough of this guy. So what I'm going to do, we're going to take care of him. And as 10 brothers grabs him, throws him down a, a, down a dry well. He's down at the bottom of the dry well. They're not going to let him out. He's way away from home. He's not going to let him out of there. Do you think that's traumatic? Probably so. He couldn't get out. The only way he can get out is if get his ten brothers or somebody happened to come along. Is out in the middle of nowhere, 
obviously, and nobody comes along. He's yelling, he's screaming, he's in darkness. He has this feeling of helplessness in his life. He has all this going on. And to make matters worse, trauma two comes along, and this is, his brothers say, well, he's down in this hole. What are we going to do, leave him down there? We're not going to benefit from that. Let's do something else. Let's sell him into slavery. Let's make some money off of this guy. He's given us a hard time for all these years. Let's do something to get it payback. And so they sell him into slavery for something worth that was basically worth in that day two years' wages, the Scripture says to us. And in do, doing so, uh, after they do that, remember, the father's still back at home. Joseph still is his favorite. So what do the brothers do? They have to begin to do the process of which their family had already learned so well. They lie. They lie. All ten of them lie. And they say, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And we'll show you. We took that really cool coat you gave him. And, and, and they got it with blood on it. And then they said an animal killed him. And so that's what they told their father. And for the next 22 years, that's what the father thought. That was, that was his, they, they had a funeral for him, the whole deal, I'm sure. They did all those things. And, and Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt. And as he went to Egypt, this, this trauma was so much, he lost his mom, his dad, his culture, his country, his place. Everything that meant something to him, he lost. And I'm sure there was some scars upon him because of that trauma that he went through. Scars like, who can I trust? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe he began to ask himself that. Maybe I shouldn't have told that story, that dream I had. Then trauma three is this. He's in Egypt, and as he's in Egypt, as he's going through living life there, he's sold into the household as a household slave of a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar does something. Uh, Potiphar is a powerful uh, powerful guy in the Egyptian government, and, and what, it, what happens is, is Potiphar's wife decides that she's taken a liking to Joseph. Joseph must have been a good-looking young guy, and... And so Potiphar's wife decides to do something. Well, Potiphar's out of town on a business trip. What she decides to do is to seduce this young guy. It says in Scripture, not, not making this up, she, it's just, it's just, it could be a soap opera. And, and, and she seduce, tries to seduce this young guy, but Joseph, who still, in, in spite of all the stuff that had happened in his life, in spite of everything that had happened in his life, what does he do? He decides to do the right thing. He says, no. And because he does the right thing, guess what happens? He gets rewarded. No. He comes back, uh, Potiphar comes back home because the wife is ticked because Joseph rejected her. She tells a lie that he tried to seduce her. And he gets thrown into prison. And we don't know exactly how long, but probably 10 to 12 years. We think, you know, you will see a movie, it's 15 minutes until the next song's over. But that's, you know, but that's, it's a little longer than that. He gets thrown into prison for this long period of time. And his story goes along, the story, uh, uh, he's in prison for this long period of time, forgotten, and eventually he gets out of prison because the Pharaoh has this real issue, and this real issue, he has these dreams, and he can't have anybody, all of his wise advisors can't interpret them. And while he's in prison, Joseph's been interpreting dreams for some of the prisoners there, and they've come true. And they knew it's from God, and all of a sudden they say, they say to uh, one of the guys gets out of prison, and, and he tells the, and he tells the Pharaoh, he says, hey, I remember this guy in prison, I can't remember his name, I think it was Joseph, I'm not really sure. He did this, and so they bring him out, and the long, long story short, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, Pharaoh is so enamored with Joseph that he makes him second in charge of the kingdom because of his wisdom. He places him in a position of management of the kingdom's resources. 
And it happens that right get, get ready, what's going to happen is it's going to go through a time of drought. And Joseph said, hey, hey, guys, we need to kind of save up ahead of time. And because of that, that way we'll be all right with the drought. Everybody else will be, you know, too bad for them. But uh, we'll be fine if we do this. He does what is right. He does the right thing. He manages it well. He listens to God. He does all these things. And what happens is he he's, uh, becomes a person of influence, huge influence in the kingdom. And in the midst of this, what happens is, is his brothers and his dad back in Canaan, during this famine, they have to come to Egypt because Egypt's the only place that has any food. And they come there, and 22 years have passed since his brothers have thrown him down the hole, thrown him down to this, this thing, and they've sold him into slavery. Now, let me ask you, the father, Jacob, sends some of his sons to go ask the Egyptian officials, can they have some grain? And they walk into the room. And there's Joseph. Of course, they don't recognize Joseph because Joseph has grown up a little bit over these years. Has some real cool Egyptian clothes on, you know, the whole bunch of stuff going on. But the issue is they don't recognize him. Let me ask you a question, a hard question. Based on the history, if you'd been Joseph, based on the history of, of your family, how would you have responded to them? Would you have treated them nice? Would you have uh, had any reason at all to, uh, uh, you know, Joseph has power. He can have them sent to death. He's second in the kingdom. Joseph had a choice to make at that point, to let his past and the experiences of his past rule him and continue to guide him in the present and in the future, or he had a choice to make, and that was to do the thing that God wanted to do. Now we come. He's, he's recognized. Uh, that they've told, he's told them who he is. And he's and he's uh, and he's let them know that what's going on, and then we see um, this thing with his family getting ready to go down. We're going to look at that in just a second. But I want to say this to you first. I want to apply this. You know, if I'd have been Joseph, I don't know if I'd have, I'd have responded the way Joseph did. I have to be honest with you. I don't. I know if you're honest with yourself, would you you know do it this way? Would you have responded the way Joseph? did? We're going to look at that in a minute. Because so often in our past, we have so much from our past that affects us in our present. And sometimes we're not even aware of it. Sometimes we have a lot of things in our past that affect our present. And in a real sense, the effect on your family, the effect that your family had on you is much deeper and more profound than you realize. Let me share some reasons why. Um, brought my washer today just in case we needed some laundry done. This is not your dirty laundry, by the way. This doesn't have to be dirty laundry. It can be just laundry, okay? But let me share with you some things, some Ten Commandments of the family, ten areas where your family um, influences you. All of us are influenced in some ways by our families in at least these ten areas. I could have probably named a lot more, but this is just ten. Let me give you the first. Let's go up the next slide. Uh, for instance, the first, the first area is uh, money, uh, money. Uh, here's money, okay? Uh, we're all influenced in our, the way we view money by the family we grew up. And we have uh, things that... That their families, and sometimes it's not overt, sometimes it's kind of underlying. But certain things like, well, sometimes our families tell us, well, money's the best source of security. Money's the best source of security. We know that sometimes, we know that the way that we treat money. The more money, or another, another thing is the more money you have, the more important you are. Sometimes families will say, ah, oh, you're, you know, it's because, let me tell you how you do that. You look at your kids and instead of saying, who did God make you to be? And you have a choice for where you're going to college and what you're going to do. You say, well, what will make the most money? That's the way you treat, you treat uh, that, that view. 
And, and so what does this say to you about money? Or make lots of money to prove you made it. Money, we have a lot of influences from our family in regards to money. Another uh, area is conflict. Conflict. You know, some of our families, we learn all kinds of things about conflict with. And conflict's kind of an interesting thing because in our families, nobody sits down and has a seminar on how to deal conflict, but we learn it in lots of ways. One of the things that families often teach us is avoid conflict at all costs. How do families teach us that? Because that's what they do. When there's conflict, some of your families, all they do is they stuff it. They stuff it. They never deal with it. Let me ask you a question. This is a survey. You can respond this morning in regard to this. Does the Bible teach us to be peacemakers or peacekeepers? Peacemakers. Yes. Thank you, Carl. Okay. Peacemakers. The Bible never says to be a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is somebody who will keep the peace at all costs. But being a peacemaker, that's what the Bible says. Even in the Beatitudes, it says to be a peacemaker. And let me ask you a question. Is being a peacemaker always avoiding conflict? No, sometimes it's jumping right into the conflict so you can make the peace. When you stuff things, but some of us learn from our families that we grow up in an unbiblical way of approaching life. And that is being to deal with conflict and avoid it at all costs. Another thing sometimes we deal with is sex. Can we even say that word in church? The problem is that sometimes we don't talk about this, folks. Let me explain something to you. Every time I do premarital counseling, I do a survey. I've been doing this for like 20-some years now in premarital counseling. And one of the things I ask every couple that's come to my office about, I try to ask this, and we get around to it most of the time, is this, I'll talk, we talk about this, believe it or not, in premarital counseling. But I ask them, most of the couples, I say, in your family you grew up in, did you ever have, how much information did you get about sex? And I will tell you the shocking fact is this, even in the Christian families that I generally deal with, is it's very little. Very little. Let me explain, that may be one of the reasons that our world is so messed up about sex. is because as parents, you know, let me explain, the school, it's not the school's job to teach your kids about sex. It's your job as parents. It's my job with my kids. That's why we begin very early in life describing to them as they understand developmentally some things because sex is not a bad thing. Sex is not a bad three-letter word in the context that God made it to be. But we need to describe it to our families. And if we have an issue with it, we probably learned it somewhere along the way. Like, our families never talked about it, so what does that mean about it? What does that mean when nobody talks about something? It's bad. We better not talk about that one. Don't bring that up in this family. Folks, that's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's, it's sometimes a learned pattern. It's sadly a learned pattern. It affects our world in all kinds of negative ways. Grief. Whoop, upside down. Grief. Grief and loss. We learn all kinds of things about grief and loss in our families that we grew up in. We learn things like, like sadness is a sign of weakness. How do we know that? When we grieve, we do it quietly. It's according to what culture you grow up in. Some cultures, it's a sign of weakness, not to, uh, it's a sign when you grieve, you just let all your emotions out. There's somewhere in between there we have to understand that, that sadness is not necessarily a sign of weakness. It's an emotion. It's a real emotion. Um, other ones say, well, you're not, you, you know, you decide you're not allowed to get depressed. 
Well, folks, I've been depressed before, so I'm telling you before it, uh, it's, it's a reality in life. You can go through it. Depression is anger turned inward, and sometimes you just get angry with the situation in life and angry with yourself and lack of change and stuff, and, it, and if you allow it to turn inward for a period of time, what happens? It turns into depression. Or another thing we learn about grief and loss is this. Get over losses quickly and move on. You know, don't dwell on too long. It's not healthy. I'm not doing a psychology lesson. I'm doing a life lesson. Because the Bible talks about this in multitudes of ways. Another thing that the Bible talks about and we learn from our families is this, is how to express anger. Uh, we don't like this word sometimes in the Christian church. It's the next word besides sex that is, it is not real good. Because anger, you know, you're not supposed to be angry. Some of you learned that from your families. Do not bit get angry. You know, or you may have learned the opposite extreme. If you're angry, how you do is you explode. Some of you learned that lesson in your family. That's how you deal with anger. You get, you get loud. Because it always helps, right? No. Helps nothing. Or another way we learn is sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Just be sarcastic. Nobody understands it. Not everybody understands sarcasm. You know, so the thing is, is we learned that in our families growing up as well. I'm just asking you to think about this this morning. Another thing we learn in our families is about family. Some families say this, that duty to family is, and culture comes before everything else. Duty to family. Your family is more important than anything. Let me ask you a question. Does the Bible say that? What's the hierarchy? Let's give, let's give three options. God others and yourself where do others including family go number two not number one god is number one and it's expressed in all kinds of ways the bible is clear about that jesus talks about that in several different parables and stories it's told over and over and over again that god has to be number one number two is other people which includes your family and number three yourself it doesn't mean you put yourself down but you you're there you humble yourself before others to serve others to love others and to express your relationship with them in a way that's healthy and that's the way god wants us to do it but so often we learn in our family you know that that's the way it is relationships this is, is is another one relationships relationships are interesting um we learn this in families in different ways but one of the ways we learn it is this is i've heard this before people come into my office and say i don't trust anybody and i'm thinking where did you learn that probably in your family growing up because you had some experiences where people proved themselves not to be trustworthy and so you quit trust you decided not to trust anybody and, and you sometimes learn that in your family. Or somebody hurts you and you say, I will never be hurt again, so I won't build any relationships. I'll stay back. I'll keep in my little cocoon. Relationships we learn in families as well. Number eight, attitudes toward other cultures. This is a biggie. This is something we don't want to deal with. We don't have prejudices, do we? No. But, you know, one of the things that comes out in, 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 in cultures, and I'll just be honest with you because I was a youth director for, for about 10 years before I was a lead pastor, constantly asked this question amongst teenagers. Can I date people of other races? And they come back and say, my parents told me I couldn't do that. 
And they say, show me in Scripture. And I can't show them in Scripture where it says that the Bible does say do not be unequally yoked. That means do not be a, get, get marry somebody of, of, another, of another faith because yoke has to do with your belief system. The Bible never says anything about this issue of cultures. Because God, in, in, in God's sight, everybody's created equal. They're just different. So attitudes toward other cultures, we learn in their families as well. Our prejudices, we learn there as well. And then in, in this, this, success. There's another thing we learn about in, in our families so often, success. Success. What do we learn about that? Well, for instance, um, making a lot of money is success. That's the definition of success in many families. I can prove to you from all kind of studies that making no matter people that make a lot of money are not any happier than people who don't make any money. Has nothing to do with happiness in life. Study after study after study. I mean, matter of fact, if you want to look at recent studies that have gone with the lottery, it's ruined more people's lives than it's helped because they don't know how to deal with it, and they, and they deal with it in the wrong way. And there's nothing wrong biblically with money, but if you think that's going to be the key to success or the key to happiness, then you're wrong because Scripture says that is not the key. It's being who God made you to be. Success. And then finally, feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions. Uh, you know, we learn a lot about feelings and emotions in families. Um, some families, there's certain feelings you're not supposed to have. Or at least you're not kind of supposed to express them. But a feeling is a feeling. I've learned this long ago. You know, I, I, I made this wrong, I made this incredibly stupid statement years ago to my wife. We've been married 31 years. And I, and I, and I, I try not to say this anymore. And every once in a while it comes out. You shouldn't feel that way. Oh. Guys, let me give you a lesson. Don't say that to somebody. Especially your wife. Because she feels that way. It's a reality. It's not about, don't judge feelings. Feelings are something we have. We have to express them. We have to know them. We have to acknowledge them. And we go forward with that. But so often in our families, we grew up with saying, well, you can't feel that way. Or can't, you can't be that way. Or your feelings are not important. They're feelings. They're a part of who we are. All of us have feelings, even guys. Sometimes we just don't acknowledge them as well. So we learn all these things in our family. I just want you to think about those things. If you wrote them down or you think about them, those are all things that we learn about. We learn something about every one of those things in our families if we're honest with ourselves. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are they still simply the things, the, the things we learned in our family, are they the things that God would tell us to do? We grew up in good families. I'm not trying to put down your parents. I'm not trying to put you down or me down. But I hope my kids will ask themselves this hard question. Are the things that I learned in my family the things that God wants me to be and do? So we have to acknowledge that we learn lots of things. See, Joseph acknowledged that. He knew that. And I'm going to tell you the last two points really quickly this morning. Uh, next one is this. The thing we have to do when Joseph did was this. Discern the good God intends in, th- in through and in spite of your family and your past. God will take the stuff of your past, even if it was bad, and he will make it into something good. Now, let me ask you, any of you have a, have a bad 22 years like, like Joseph did? I mean, everyone got thrown into a hole in the ground, uh, got sold into slavery, got thrown into prison because of, you know, doing the right thing and spent 10 to 12 years there. Anybody here do that recently? So don't say that Joseph had it easier than you do. You know, he didn't. 
He had every reason to be angry at God and angry at people and, 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 and just, just go off the deep end. He had every reason to do that, right? And if anybody did, Joseph did. He was unjustly accused of so many things. He was done things wrong to in so many ways. But we read in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, these words. At the end of everything, this is what it says. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, this is after everything had happened, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? He would be in his right to do it. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Kind of like this is the coward's layout. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when Joseph, uh, when, when they, their message came to him, Joseph wept. And after they gave him this message, then it says, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. You know, they felt pretty bad. They should. They messed up his life for 22 years because of the choices they did. But Joseph, the guy who had all his stuff done to him, who had a whole history of, of back to his great-grandparents of deception and lies and messed up relationships, this is what he says in verses 18, 19, and 20. Or 8, 19, and 20. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Verse 20, one of the greatest verses of Scripture. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for the good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. After everything else, after all the things that happened, after all of his past, Joseph decided this. He said, hey, yeah, you know, what you did was wrong. He didn't say it was right. He said, what you did was wrong. But I'm looking at the bigger picture because I am trusting in God that through this, through all this mess of this last 22 years, what God has done is he's used it for good. We have to, once we understand the baggage in our life, we don't have to live and repeat it again. What we can do is we can take it And we can take it and we can give it all to God. And in doing so, what he can do, he'll do something with it in our lives. He doesn't, we don't have to repeat all the past. You don't have to do the same things that were, you don't have to let the past direct your current, present, and in your future. God wants to change that. He wants to. To, to make it better. I love in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven these words. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And I tie that along with what it says over in Proverbs 19. It says this, There many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. God has a plan for our lives, and if we will go along, even in the bad times, what it says, God has a plan to help us to be our best self. And we don't have to, yeah, you've had some garbage, some junk that's gone on to you in the past. You know, if you're lucky, you don't have much. But if you have a certain place in your life, you may have a bunch. But what Scripture is saying to us, or what Joseph is saying to us, you do not have to choose to repeat the past. And the last point is this. You've got to make the decision to learn from your past and not repeat it. You make the choice. 
I make the choice. But unless I stop and ask myself and reflect and ask myself the question, what is it that I learn? And how does it match up with God's plan? And then say, hey, God, you can work through all this. And you, what have you tried to teach me through this? Then what it is, I make the decision to learn from the past and not repeat it. Because God has a plan for us in the present. And God's plan, you know, the past, you know, we could, we could pull out of the washer all this garbage. But what God wants us to do, he wants to, he wants to do something else. He wants to clean up. The past is past, you know. It's, it's not there anymore. He says that when his blood covers you, it covers all of your sins, all your past. And you don't, even though it's there, it's the baggage. You choose whether it becomes your present and your future. So I ask you this morning, what's your choice? What's your choice? Joseph chose, in spite of all the stuff he chose, to stick with God through all the ups and the downs. It was, it's not that when you choose God, everything's going to be wonderful and perfect, but you will begin to see God working in the midst of everything the good and the bad. And you may not see it immediately. I mean, it probably took a long time for Joseph to see the stuff coming out good. But he understood it because he trusted God. He trusted his plan for his life. And he evaluated his family. He said, I am not going to become a liar or a deceiver or a cheat or any of the things that my family was. I'm going to become the person that God wants me to be. And God, with his power in our life, I can do all things. I can't do it myself, but only with his power can I do all things. It's your choice. This week, I would encourage you to do one thing. On the back of your, uh, of your bulletin uh, sermon outline in the back, there's an evaluation thing. Uh, I would encourage you to take that and to do that as a, a self-reflection. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago when we began this series, what I did is I gave you a, a thing that week and a thing last week that had some other questions. If you'll notice, these questions are like number 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And, and it's a continuation. Keep these, go through them, evaluate them. At the end, what I want to do is I want to give you the key, the, the, the overall thing about at the end of the series to understand about where you are emotionally and, and spiritually. It'll be a self-evaluation. It'll help you to ask yourself some questions you need to ask yourself. And each week, though, we're going to, I encourage you to use this as a further way of reviewing where you are with God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.